0: Do you know what I've been wondering? I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. I feel like I always say, how are you? <laughs> oh, so, I'm just so gonna... you're waiting for me? <laughs> I feel like I'm always the one that's like, and how are you first? So I'm trying to flip the script. A okay, little bit. well, how are you? I also just didn't have anything to say.
1: <laughs> I feel like literally the only reason why I don't ask you how you are first is that my brain just forgets how we structure our podcast. And I'm like, all right, we've started. And then I'm like, oh, how does it go? And then you go, well, first we ask each other how we are. How are you? And I'm like, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Like, it's also because I always say
0: my name first and then you yeah, say your name. And then true. it doesn't really make sense to go, I'm Jane. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not how we're trained to have conversations. But I also was just thinking, like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, I don't know either. I'm exactly how I was last week and Same. how I will
1: be a week from now. Like... Just floating in limbo.
0: Yeah, I think I I think I'm just deteriorating and getting worse. But like, so as so is everybody. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like we're all just getting we're all just worse off than we were the week before. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
0: except now I'm worse off, and we got
1: more Girl Scout cookies. So <laughs> I just think it's. Fun. I saw a TikTok a couple days ago that was like the FBI agents watching me, like, and. They were like, "Uh, hey, maybe we should start set- giving her ads for, like, therapy. Like, But then I got an email from BetterHelp being like, you interested in therapy, like, a day later? And I was like, oh, they know. like, <laughs> <laughs> They know that it's you. It's my FBI agent.
0: Yeah, I was talking to someone on the phone, and they asked me about BetterHelp, and I was like, I don't know anything about it. And then I hung up the phone and opened Facebook, and there was an ad for BetterHelp. So I was like, okay, well, yeah. you know that I said that. <laughs>
1: yeah. So. That's cute. Okay. Well,
0: yeah, say lovey. La
1: <laughs> Such is life. It's, it's true. Uh,
0: we're just going to float from room to room, recording in different spaces and slowly getting worse.
1: This room feels cool. This feels like a recording studio just because it's small and it's like. And there's like no on one, the one on the third this floor. floor. Yeah. <laughs> there's no one around.
0: It's our secret space. Yeah.
1: Surrounded right by
0: your mom's exercise equipment <laughs> and my childhood movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Love the Cheetah Girls. Yeah, it's on prominent display. One (laughs) of the ones from this collection I've watched more
1: recently. We watched The Pacifier very recently. Um, We did. I love that movie. uh, Shark Tale, I think I saw once. (laughs) I think I also only saw it once, and yet I
0: own it on DVD, so. Finding Nemo is shook. (laughs) I like Shark Tale better, what can I say? (laughs) Finding Nemo is not my go-to movie. You
1: don't, I mean, I know it's not, this isn't the reason, but you don't like fish.
0: (laughs) yeah that I mean, is nothing with me. Fish. that's that's nothing to, i mean i like shark tail that's also <laughs> oh, yeah. fish. no finding nemo i just i think is overrated like i think it's good mm. but i feel similarly to finding nemo as i feel about the lion king i think people give it too mm-hmm. much credit mm-hmm. um, i agree so those are my that's my hot take on finding nemo today <laughs> um Sizzling. Yeah. Sizzling takes. Yeah, it's true. It's true.
1: Do you want to just get just started? dive on into it? Yeah, sure. sure. So you asked me about facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Now, facial recognition is a way, this is kind of a duh statement, but of recognizing a human face through technology. Yeah. Biometrics are used to map facial feature features from a photograph or video. And I guess on your iPhone, you have to do sort of a video of you moving your face around. Yeah. for it to like scan your face. Yeah. But basically biometrics are literally just measurements of biological or physical characteristics. Okay. Biometrics is also used for fingerprint mapping. And retina scans, mm-hmm. like of your eyes. Yeah. Those are all forms of biometric technology. Cool. Um, facial recognition is a growing industry. It was, the facial recognition market was worth $4 billion in 2017 and is expected to grow to $7.7 billion oh. in 2022. Cool. Which, not to be like 7700000000 billion isn't a lot, because it is, but I was kind of surprised. I was thinking it'd be bigger than that. I don't know why. Well, it takes a long time to get to a billion, so. Yeah. A billions. Yeah. There should be no billionaires. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Facial recognition can be used for everything from surveillance to marketing. Uh-huh. We'll get into that a little bit more mm. in a bit. Facial recognition, it uses extremely specific and precise measurements and the details of our faces. Mm-hmm. Like, when you see a person, you recognize their face just because you your brain recognizes and is familiar with their facial features. Okay. Like, you know how my face is arranged and you know, like, how large my nose is. But, right. Like, even if you're not, like, consciously, like, I know the measurements of James. Because so you don't know that. Right, 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 But, right. like, in your mind, you have an idea of the right. proportions and measurements and locations of where things are on my face. Right. Facial recognition is like that, but, like, times a 1000 mm-hmm. It uses uh, a really big, grand algorithmic scale, as this one article I read said, but basically, it gets the tiniest little details of your face. Okay. For example, it takes measurements like how far apart your eyes are. It measures the distance between okay. each of your eyes or mm-hmm. like all the distance from your chin to your top of your forehead or the chin mm-hmm. to your lips. Like. Okay. It measures makes sense. it makes it takes so much data. It has micro measurements. Yeah. Yeah. So much data from your face. Every little thing is measured and put into a database. Ew. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't like the idea that there's a file out there that's like Sarah's nose and then you open it and it just says I don't like, think it's
1: called. <laughs> I know. But you open it and it says Sarah's it's too.
0: like I don't know, four inches, whatever.
1: <laughs> the data is stored and it can be accessed later for future use. You can open up the Sarah's nose file, as you just said. It's just a picture of my nose. <laughs> According to a Georgetown University study, half of all American adults have their images stored in one or more facial recognition database. I have a feeling that that's an old statistic. I'd be surprised if it was only half. Yeah, me it's, too. Yeah. Because even people who are, like, older or, quote-unquote, off the grid, like, you probably have, like, a license picture or, like, mm-hmm. have some sort of way they've been photographed and the government has a copy of it. Like, Yeah, probably. But That seems like more than half of people. I'm not saying everyone. I'm sure there are exceptions to every rule, but... Right. It, ju- it does feel
0: like it should be more than half.
1: It does, yes. So how does it really work? We talked a little bit already about biometrics, but... A picture of your face is captured. Uh, it's most useful to databases if the picture is straight ahead or in profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soft- software reads the geometry of your face and it identifies facial landmarks, distances between features, and the software can recognize at least 68 different types of facial landmarks. Oh. I don't know what all of those are, but I'm sure like the tiniest little thing, like pimples, just, dimples, yeah. moles. Well, a pimple, I wonder if they keep track of that, because that can go away. It's true, but when they scan you, I don't know. I don't know. Yep. Your facial signature is compared to a database of known faces. Like, it's just put into, like, a library mm-hmm. of faces that I'm sure are sorted or I uh, just That just makes me accessible. think of Game of Thrones, That like, room oh, with all yeah. the faces on the wall. That's what I picture that looking like. <laughs> Police databases have images of the faces of 117 million Americans. Oh, and the FBI database has access to 412 million facial images that's more people than there are in America <laughs> well i'm sure there's people think a surplus yeah <laughs> surplus well i'm sure they have people who have been deceased they
0: have or people that have committed crimes yeah who are in america who
1: are not from america Yeah, because they deal with visas and things like that. Yeah. They use facial recognition databases to determine if your face print may match the image of a facial signature they have in their database. Okay. So I think somehow they can put your face in and it can, like, pull up a match Mm. if they're in there. So who uses facial recognition? The U.S. government, via the Department of Homeland Security and Customs, uses facial recognition to monitor people in airports- when you have a visa, you are required to provide a picture of yourself and that and they use facial recognition software to identify people who have overstayed their visas or are under criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can also tell if you're using a stolen passport. So basically, uh, this whole thing like made me feel real creeped out. I thought it was going to make me feel real creeped out because I was being spied out on my computer, but it's more so like we're just being watched everywhere. Yeah. Like if you hand someone... Like, in some airports, you can literally hand over a passport that's, like, stolen or something, but because there's, like, a surveillance cam or something, they can analyze your face and go, oh, that's not the person that, that's pa- that owns that passport. Even if it has that person's picture in it, they'll know that no, it's No, but, like, stolen. if you, if you f- steal someone's passport who you think you look a lot alike... Oh, okay. ...and, like, try and pretend you're them, like, f- people can use facial recognition software to be like, nope, you're not. Gotcha. In 2018, customs officials at Washington... Dulles International Airport Mm -hmm. made their first arrest using facial recognition in 2018 when they caught an imposter trying to enter the country. Oh. I'm sure they were using like a fake. Yeah. Or stolen passport or something. Some colleges use facial recognition software and I'm sure this must be for big universities because I cannot imagine a college like ours doing this. Yeah. When class sizes are so much smaller. But (laughs) they use it to take attendance in class They use it in an effort to prevent cheating. Like, -hmm. they don't want someone to come in and take a test for someone else. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Which I think when you have, like, a larger class, like...
0: Yeah. I mean, like, most of my friends who went to big colleges, they, on average, had
1: classes of, like, well over 100 people. Yeah, exactly.
0: So... That makes sense.
1: And the professor's not going to remember everybody, but a computer could remember everybody's face. Right. Facebook uses facial recognition in an algorithm to spot the faces of its users when a photo is uploaded. Mm -hmm. So that's why when you post a... When you upload a picture of with multiple people in it, it'll recognize the people in the yeah, picture. It'll make and go, suggestions. Do you want to tag them? Yeah. iPhones use facial recognition for unlocking. The iPhone X and all of the mm-hmm. models after that have that. Mm-hmm. The LG V30 phones have facial recognition as well as fingerprinting and voice recognition. Cool. Some high-tech companies use facial recognition for security and like accessing restricted areas, which just sounds like a spy movie. Yeah. But that's fun. Some I, this sounds so crazy to me that this is the world we live in, but some churches mm-hmm. use facial recognition to scan their congregations and track how often different people attend. That's creepy. In, yeah. In order to figure out who best to like ask for donations and who to like ask to volunteer. That sounds creepy. It really that does. It sounds like those like really, really big churches, you know? I bet Scientology does it. Oh, Yeah. But there is but like a thing called, a, a I think religion. it's called a
0: mega church. Someone I went to high school with attends one. She lives in South Carolina now and I forget the term that she used, but she said that there's definitely pros and cons of attending. I think it's called a mega church where the mm. congregation is like thousands of people. Jeez. Yeah. And it's like as much a corporation as it is a church in a lot mm. of ways. And she said that there's pros and cons to it, but I, that, that wouldn't surprise me if some
1: of a organization like that would use. Yeah. Facial recognition. Retailers use facial recognition to scan the faces of shoppers to prevent shoplifting. Which makes sense to me. My no. whole thing about this is how many cameras are out there that are like doing facial recognition. Like, you don't even know. Like it, it just yeah. seems so insane. Some airlines scan your face as you're boarding the flight. Oh. Like when you're handing over the boarding pass and they scan it, there is at least one known airline that subtly just like takes a picture of you. Mm. And, like, has a security camera and is scanning everybody's face as they're getting on the plane. I assume, like, after, in a post nine eleven world... Right. ...we're just, like, being extra careful that everybody who's getting on the plane is who they say they are. Right. But, you know, I don't know. That is creepy. It's very creepy. I just, like... I don't think I have a problem with surveillance,
0: but I do think it should be illegal to do it without people knowing. Like, I think if you're going to be an organization that uses it, I think they should have to have a sign on the door that says this
1: place uses facial
0: recognition. Yeah. I think that's a fair request.
1: Which I'm sure it's not just a standard security camera. I'm sure you have to get like a specific type of... Yeah, probably. ...camera that has like all the little dots that right and pick also pick up a has facial a place, signature
0: and has a place to store all that information yeah. like a lot of security places they have it but they don't store it mm. you know
1: it's just filming live but it doesn't save any of it mm-hmm. marketers and advertisement campaigns use facial recognition at events like concerts to target potential customers it's like super normal and like makes total mm-hmm. sense for companies to market stuff to specific genders ages and ethnicities but now it's like Oh, someone took a picture at a concert of the crowd around them or something. And we're using visual recognition to be like, oh, that person's at the concert. Let's send them, like, an email to buy our merch. Oh. That's or, weird. Yeah. Just, like, very specific advertisements because yeah. they're literally tracking our lives and... Yeah monitoring our behaviors so that they can make money off of us, which we've already been talking about this a lot, but what are some downsides of this? Yeah. (laughs) Your facial data can be collected and stored without permission. It's just happening constantly. With your facial data floating around so many places, it is even easier for hackers or identity thieves to obtain it and use it. Yeah. Pretend they're you and buy something or something. It's very difficult to know who has access to your facial signature.
0: That's annoying
1: (laughs) yeah uh, you don't I
0: just think that there should be a sign
1: (laughs) (laughs) we are collecting your facial signature this one kind of bugged me you don't necessarily own the rights to your digital image like um Mm -hmm. a lot of social media networks work so that when you sign up for them you are giving up your right to ownership of any digital image of your face on their platform yeah and if someone gets a hold of your image online they can sell it for money and I don't think that's illegal I guess, like... I think there are some mega celebrities who have trademarked their image. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And, like, companies' logos are trademarked Yeah, things like that. So, even though they could sell your face if you were wearing a shirt with a company logo on yeah. it, they would have to blur that out because they don't have the right to use that mm, image. Yeah.
1: But, like, your facial signature. I yeah.
0: Mean. I mean... I think mean, that makes sense because if you think about, like, artists, like, when an artist paints somebody... That image doesn't belong to the person they painted. It It belongs to the artist, you know? Mm. And because I think Facebook and Instagram view themselves as a platform through which to share things, it's like by posting on there, you're saying that that is owned by Instagram. Yeah. Because it's the platform through which you are
1: sharing an image, you know? Yeah.
0: So I can see how that came about
1: Mm-hmm. There are a lot of safety concerns with facial recognition. Mm-hmm. People are mostly concerned, like, okay, if you're going to be using facial recognition software, we need to make sure that the person who has access to that is someone who, like, is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a guy, like, running the surveillance equipment or, like, monitoring it and facial recognition spots you, now he has knowledge to where you are. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's to stop that guy from, like, harassing you or stalking you? Right, right. Because he literally, like, is watching you, kind of like, right, that's creepy. So, we just have to make sure that the people who are working for are, like are trustworthy people, I guess. Right. There's a worry that if the systems aren't 100% accurate and they might falsely identify people, and with the addition of the fact that we might become dependent on this and just like trust it completely, there could be a lot of cases of, as I said already, misidentification. Right. Like, if someone committed a crime and it was caught on camera and a facial recognition software was used to find out who that person was mm-hmm. and it gets it wrong and they think it's you, even though it wasn't you, mm-hmm. that you could potentially be punished for a crime you didn't commit. People are worried that big one, it infringes on our basic freedoms to have government agencies watching and tracking our every move. So those are really the biggest worries when it comes yeah. to it. The Interestingly, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has done a, a lot of research on this topic in general, Mm -hmm. and they did one experiment where they downloaded the photos of 20 volunteers from social media, and they used those photos to, like, get the facials, like, everything and construct 3D models of their faces, and then they used the 3D models to try and, like, break into different security systems that Mm use facial recognition, and they were able to breach four out of five of the security systems they tested. Wow. So, Don't love that. Uh, That's really nuts. On a similar note, which is not really related to facial recognition, but it's related to something kind of similar, which is fingerprint recognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also said in a very similar study that with 40 minutes of your time and $10 worth of materials, you can copy someone's fingerprint using molding plastic and candle wax. Mm-hmm. That doesn't surprise so me. So now I'm like, oh, no. like Yeah. I was using my fingerprints. I then... mean, if
0: your fingerprint probably gets you access to a lot less than your face does.
1: Yeah. You the... can get
0: into someone's yeah. Disney World thing with their fingerprint, but... <laughs> <laughs> They use fingerprints to go in and out.
1: (laughs) Mm. They say the risk for facial recognition as like a signature to get into things is like a similar level to a password database. Okay, but the thing with password databases is if someone hacks an account of yours or something and they figure out your password, you can change. You can change the password. password. It's not so simple to change your face. Like it's doable, but not really. Right, 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 right. Not to the average person. Again, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Carnegie Mellon have developed. Anti facial recognition glasses that make wearers undetectable. I don't know exactly what they are. I'm assuming they're just like big sunglasses or something that the like the lens on the outside is dark enough that a facial rec like a uh, something that was or it's something that reflects light or something couldn't like that. see. Yeah, yeah. The it like blocks it obscures your features. However, at the same time. Also at Carnegie Mellon, the cybersecurity company Semantic funded research for ways that their software could get around the evasive meth, like could see through right. Right. counter facial recognition glasses. Right. So, like I, I don't know like, Carnegie Mellon's on both sides there. That's weird. <laughs> not helping us, um, yeah. making us think that we're safe with these trying glasses, to, yeah, but trying then to telling neutral. the tech companies exactly how to get through those glasses. Right. So a couple of tips for just, like, being safe with all these things out there is just always be careful on social media. Like, be wary of the things you're posting pictures of. Mm-hmm. Posting too much information we already know is, like, not super safe, but, like, post, like, everybody's already posting a lot of pictures of themselves. That's kind of, like, set in stone. But in this world where they can very easily find out where they are, like, this article I was reading was just, like, so many people are posting pictures of, like, where they are on vacation, where their houses are. Right. Posting videos of their personal lives where people can look literally into their lives and get information on how to steal from them, basically. Right. Which is, it just made me. Like, I know, like, you shouldn't be paranoid. Like, just live your life. But, I don't know, be careful. Oh, also, this one is I feel like something that should be said also not related to facial recognition but if your password is the name of your pet or the mascot of your high school or something like that don't be posting all that information on Facebook like right use something for a password that someone can't find just by looking at your Facebook page you know right yeah or your Twitter Right. right, right. I feel like I'm revealing myself to be the grandmother that only really uses Facebook (laughs) I'm old An old 24-year-old. There are secure internet routers you can buy, which I feel like is maybe a majority of internet routers that does its best to Mm -hmm. encrypt your personal information and keep your internet private. Mm -hmm. And that makes it harder for people to hack into your accounts and stuff and get all your pictures and things. Right. And there are also cybersecurity packages that you can buy to help protect your devices from viruses, ransomware, and cyber criminals, because that's really the way that people are going to get access to your pictures that they shouldn't, is if they somehow get into your Wi-Fi, then they could get into your phone. Right. And get your pictures and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's everything about facial recognition. I thought I was going to be real anxious about the government with this, but now I'm just anxious that my identity is going to get stolen. Not that I have a lot for them to take, but...
0: Right, yeah. (laughs) It's... That's a fair thing to be afraid of. I think that's definitely what we should be more nervous about, because the government...
1: Like if if you're like just, like, thing. an
0: average person, I don't think the government is has anything to hold over you, you know? Exactly. Like if you're not out there committing crimes, like, it's more, I think, that the government's going to use your face to situate someone who is committing crimes if you were seen near them or to yeah. try to figure out if you were a witness to a crime. I feel like that's what more likely the government's using your face for. Um, or they're making clones, but that's the whole other thing. Um, oh, I'm sure. But, like, yeah, the the identity theft is the real, is the real danger.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, I've, I've had this conversation a lot with people where I'm like, if the government is watching my every move, like, I don't know, I don't really have anything to hide. That being said, though, I don't know if I can trust them with my private information. And like, Maybe other people aren't doing anything wrong, but want to keep something secret. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a personal thing. I, yeah. It, we also should be knowing if we're going to be having our information out there. Like, we should be notified exactly how it's being used. We should be, we should give permission for things. Mm-hmm.
0: I think, I think we're too far gone for that. Yeah. Like, I don't think if so, we're suddenly to be able to turn around because it's like so many people are just using it. Like, the information's just out there. Like, yeah. Shane Dawson did a video about how easy it is to buy a miniature camera, you know, yeah. and hide them. I think that's just out there. But I do think that we need to have a better system of that information being disclosed, you know? Yeah. Like, because I don't think it's something we can necessarily stop. But I think stating that is important, mm. you know? Being like, yes, yeah. we are. Yes, you are. Like, it's like there are lots of places they have signs that say, like,
1: you are under surveillance. Like, if they have security cameras. Yeah. And, like, in England, they have CCTV surveillance cameras, like, pretty much everywhere in public spaces. Right. Which I totally get for, like, keeping the public safe and for, like, solving crimes. It's it's really more so the, like, being able to specifically track people mm-hmm. and having the image of your face being turned into something that we use to access our money and mm-hmm. access our personal data yeah. and possessions. And- yeah. Yeah. That are things that make
0: me wary. Yeah. I think that it just needs to be disclosed. I don't think there's anything at this point that we can do to stop it, but I do think there are things we can do to ensure that we know when and where it's happening. Yeah. That's more of our, at this point, I think that's more of our responsibility Mm -hmm. than anything else. Uh, That's what I think is feasible. Yeah. I should say. Not necessarily our responsibility. So everyone just be careful out there. I mean, it's not like we're going outside right now anyway. Someone <laughs> someone's spying on me. If in my someone house. breaks
1: into the house, they'd be like, why aren't you in your house? Social distance, six feet away, please. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, so my middle segment is really short. I was scrolling through Reddit and someone hosted this picture. And said, I need someone to help me settle this debate with my wife. What color is this shoe? Oh, no. It's one of those. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like the dress. I'm going to show you the picture. That shoe is gray and light blue. I see pink and white. No, I will say it looks like it's pink and white, but like there's a blue light in the room. But I can still tell it's pink. I don't know what the answer is, but apparently, like half of the people see pink and white, the other half see gray and green. I see like a very very light blue, like a on the laces.
0: Yeah, the laces
1: and the stripe. Wait, what? Which part do you see is pink? pink is, like, the fabric of the shoe and then this is, like, white. But again, the whole thing is being held under a blue light. I'll have to post this. Can you make sure you send this to me so I can post it on Instagram? But this might be an older thing that I'm just catching on to because when was this posted on Upworthy? Um, And we don't know the answer. May 2nd, 2019. Oh, uh, no, we do. We do. It's this. This is the company that makes it. Oh, it's a van. Yeah, it's it's a pair of pink and white vans. But I I think it's just the lighting. Yeah, no, I totally see it as white and teal. I can definitely see how people see that, but my brain is also like, but that's like pink under. I didn't really get to look at it. Can I look at it
0: again? Yeah. No, I don't see it as pink at all. I can't even trick my, sometimes I can trick my eyes into seeing it as pink, but because I'm seeing the white part is blue. I don't think I'm going to be able to convince myself that. Mm -hmm. Is it... I guess it's that I'm making the space around the shoe darker than it is, so I'm
1: overcompensating for the light. Yeah, probably. Sounds like something, based on what we've talked about already, that there might be an explanation. Nope. Nope. I just see... I see gray and gray and blue. (laughs) Okay. Well, and then I have one more for you. Oh, boy. This one, again, might have already been popular on the internet, but... This one has changed for me a couple times, and I... The initial color thing I saw was not either of the options. What colors do you think this jacket is? Black and brown. See, when I first looked at it, I saw black and, like, a a pink that was... Like, the lighting made it look brown or Mm -hmm. something. But... When I saw that the options were white and blue or black and brown, then I saw black and brown. So I also see black and brown, but I apparently half the people see white and blue. Uh well, I feel like that's the same as the dress. It's yeah. the same color palette. That's true. Yeah.
0: No, I totally see black and brown. What is it? I
1: have no idea. It seems like no one can tell. What is it though? I need to know. Go to the comments. It's an Adidas jacket, but they have a lot of jackets and color combos. It doesn't say in the comments. Ugly. The color is ugly. <laughs> oh, I feel well, unfulf- again. I feel unfulfilled. <laughs> it's an Adidas jacket, so it must exist somewhere. Come on. Most Buzz people feed. see blue and white. Interesting. Yeah, I can't. My brain is totally, I'm on the black and something else train. For sure. Pro, like, mostly brown. But when I first looked at that, I was like, yeah, black and pink.
0: No, I totally see black and brown. It's
1: like a I golden brown. I mean, me too brown. now. Yeah, it's like a golden brown. Yeah. Anyway, so that was my well, now I'm sad, because we don't know the answer. <laughs> Let me see if I can figure I <laughs> That was unfulfilling. <laughs> what color is the Adidas jacket, actually? The official color of the Adidas jacket is baby blue and white. What?
0: And no! 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 That's really weird. That's really, really weird. <laughs> But that's how I feel about the dress, though. Like, it's the same type of illusion to me. Like, you see it as dark, so you see it as blue and black, but I see it as a light picture, so I see it as white and Baby gold.
1: blue and white? I literally can't. Maybe if we take it
0: out of the context, if we, like, screenshot it outside of the white, the white around it. But I think it's that our brain is darkening the picture when really it's not a dark picture. <laughs> it's a light picture. That's what we learned with color constancy. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll post those on Instagram for people to look at. <laughs> yeah. Join in the debate. Very cool. Are you ready to learn about Mount Everest? I am. Okay. So I wanted to talk about... I, I was excited to talk about Mount Everest because it's something I find really fascinating and it's something that I'll definitely never do. Um, but it's <laughs> just, like, really, really cool. I think everything around what it takes to climb it and... The sort of cultural aspect to it, but also the difficulty of it. I just find it very fascinating. So Mount Everest, as you know, is the tallest mountain in the world. It is 29,035 feet or 5.5 miles high. The mountain straddles both Nepal and Tibet. About two-thirds of climbers climb Everest on the Nepal side, but it is possible to climb from Tibet. Out of 17 possible routes to the top, almost everyone climbs it via one or one or two, the Southeast Ridge from Nepal, on a line created by the first climbers to summit the mountain, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary, or on the North Ridge from Tibet. The mountain was first summited in 1953 by Norgay and Hillary, um, but thanks to improvements in knowledge, technology, and science, about 600 people summit Mount Everest each year on on the Nepalese side, including the local guides, another 500 on the Tibetan side, and about half of those who attempt the climb make it to the top. Which isn't very many. Two fun facts about Everest. It is located at the same latitude as Tampa, Florida. So you think of it as being really far north, but it's farther south than New York City and Rome. Interesting. It's just at such a high altitude, which is why it's so cold, but it's not because it lives in a cold climate. Huh. Yeah. Everest is 50 to 60 million years old. It was formed by the upward force generated when the Indian and Eurasian tectonic plates collided, and that force is still at work today, meaning the summit gets about a quarter of an inch higher every year. What? Yep. Climbing Mount Everest can cost between $30,000 to $100,000. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Foreigners must buy an $11,000 permit from the Nepalese government, and the rest of the money is spent on supplies and the necessary outfitters required. Western guides tend to be more expensive than local ones, and the local guides are known as Sherpas, but many of the time, if you pay a Western expedition to go, they will still hire local Sherpas, so it can be a mix. Um, People do it lots of different ways. A Sherpa is a colloquial term for someone who works on the mountain in the spring to prepare the route with ropes and ladders. They stock the camps, and they coach people up the mountain. Most of the time, Sherpas are, like, the people that have climbed it the most, like, there's a man who's climbed Everest 25 times well good for him yeah again, he's a Sherpa they are named after the native Tibetan tribe Sherpa but now Sherpas consist of many ethnic groups okay so it's not necessarily indicates one ethnic group anymore it's more a term for a job yeah. Most companies also will not take climbers who have not already climbed one or two other challenging peaks for example the mountain next to Everest is K2 it's the second highest mountain in the mm. world most people climb K2 before they climb Mount Everest or Mount Kilimanjaro something like that another Ooh. known Large difficult mountain. yeah another known difficult climb. Most choose to climb on the Nepal side because climbing in Tibet has become more expensive and they have more rigid rules than they do in Nepal. The government of Nepal reported collecting $5.2 million in permit fees in 2018, making it the largest source of Nepal's income out of all their economy. Sherpas can be lead guides or camp cooks, but on average, they earn $6,000 per expedition season, making this one of the most profitable jobs in the Himalayas, which is why people do it, even though it's very well, dangerous. I guess there's not that many jobs in the Himalayas, though. Right. Like, I mean, right? there's like, there's like towns down amongst it that they can do, but this is definitely the one that makes them the most
1: money. I just keep thinking of, um, that guy from Monsters, Inc. going, welcome to the Himalayas. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was a Sherpa. Uh- <laughs> Mount Everest has a very short climbing season, only a few weeks in May, but climbers arrive many weeks before to acclimatize at the base camp. Mm -hmm. In total, the climb takes about two months. Most most expeditions will leave for Kathmandu, the Nepalese city under the mountain, in March. Mm -hmm. From Kathmandu, they take a small plane to the Lukla Airport, which climbers have described as, quote, a metal tube of human sardines flying through the air. They say (laughs) it's very scary (laughs) because it feels very unsafe (laughs) to take this plane. And then it takes two weeks to hike from the Lukla airport to the Everest base camp, 17,000 feet above sea level. The base camp sits on a large glacier, which is dangerous in itself. Expeditioners have to move their tents every two weeks because of the changing terrain. Mm. while at base camp they spend another two weeks adjusting to the altitude without leaving base camp but once that is done they still have to wait for good weather conditions meanwhile in april sherpas are going up the mountain to prepare routes for the climbers at base camp they'll set the ladders the lines things like that once acclimated the climbers begin making trips up the mountain adding a few thousand feet each time before returning to base camp this goes on for one to two months yeah, it takes a really long Jesus. time. It takes forever. There are four camps that they have to go up to, and they have to cross a very dangerous piece of on the southern route, if you go that way, called the Icefall, um, the ice Icefall, which is one of the most dangerous pieces of the climb. The Icefall consists of layers of gigantic ice blocks that are constantly shifting, creating giant crevices in between them. Climbers will use metal ladders to span these cracks, and if you look at videos of it, it's insane. Like
1: what they have to do. It's so scary. Um, I can't even come a regular mountain without getting so scared. Yeah. People made fun of me in France. <laughs> I tell you what, there's this, like, one particular part of Mount saint Vitoire that my friends and were climbing, which they wanted to. I did not. And they were like, we should... And then they were like, there's two paths. One's really hard and one's, like a good, like, leisurely walk. What should we do? And I was like, the leisurely walk sounds nice. And they were like, no, we should do the really hard one. And I was like, no. But then we got, ended up getting lost in the mountain anyway and running into these two, like, French old guys with, like, walking sticks. And they're like, we will help you up the mountain. And they're (laughs) like, teenage daughter was with them. She was, like, 12 and she was wearing flip-flops and she was going way ahead of us. And we were so mad at her the whole time. Anyway, one time, one part was particularly steep and we were literally, like... like climbing Mm -hmm. physically like it basically was almost rock climbing but like you were kind of like it was almost like you were rock crawling like it was Mm -hmm. very steep but I was on my hands and knees and then a plane flew overhead like really close and it scared the crap out of me so I literally like pancake went flat against the mountain (laughs) and the people and I started sobbing yeah I would too (laughs) the people behind us literally laughed and were like she's afraid (laughs) (laughs) and I was like (laughs) <laughs> like And then they like And then we got up and then the people walked past us And they were like oh, you're so scared And I was like I am This is rude of you That was
0: rude I, <laughs> I validate your fear Um <laughs> Between 1953 and 2016, there have been 44 deaths at the icefall, which is roughly 25% of the total deaths on the south side of Everest in that window. So, mm-hmm. it is very scary. After the icefall, climbers travel to Camp 1 at 19,500 feet and then Camp 2 at 2,100 feet. Climber Shauna Burke reported that sleeping at the higher camps is almost impossible. She said, every second or third breath, your body gasps for air and then you wake yourself up. So one thing that i read about what's interesting about mountain climbing as a sport is that other sports you can train you train physically for you work out you practice they have all these things and when you are performing that sport you're performing at your peak physical level but with mountain climbing the higher you go the lesser you are performing because you're losing your ability to perform at peak level as you get higher, as you lose oxygen. So the marathon isn't being able to perform well in your best physical condition. It's the ability to perform well at your worst. Oh, it just isn't so horrible. Yeah, yeah it's nuts. Um, All the while, climbers are at risk for several life-threatening diseases while climbing. Um, This includes high-altitude polomial edema, or HAPE, which is a result of hypoxia. HAPE is the deadly accumulation of fluid in the lungs and the only treatment is to get to a lower altitude so a lot of people like this one doctor was saying he got up to camp one and immediately he was he's a pulmonary respiratory doctor and he recognized all the signs and he was like i had to turn around and go back which for some people is devastating because you spend thousands of dollars to get there it's so expensive to do it to only turn around and come back but Almost everyone that has died climbing Mount Everest was because they were unable to be honest with themselves about the physical conditions that they yeah. were going through. They they thought that they were going to just get over it. Most, I don't I don't want to say most people, but many people don't summit on their first attempt. It takes two or three mm. attempts to get to the top. Um, two or three seasons, which is very expensive. Oh, that
1: kind of time in their life.
0: Yeah, you have and to. Have money. Very, you like, have to have a very specific job to be able to leave for two to three months. Yeah, and be able to come back for sure um hypoxia which is the loss the inability for oxygen to get into your blood it's low oxygen in your blood um also has dangerous side effects including confusion shortness of breath and the inability to communicate it is possible to die from hypoxia and has been the cause of deaths on everest due to its ability to cloud judgment and limit brain function because you're just not getting enough oxygen Um, Because of the lack of oxygen as you climb, most climbers ascend with tanks of oxygen, which is expensive and heavy to carry, Mm -hmm. which is additional cost. Um, They also create a litter problem on the mountain. You can see, like, they they just leave the oxygen scans because they don't have the energy to carry them. So now they're, like, covered. They're not covered, but there are many sprinkled on the mountain, which is a litter, you know. After Camp 3, climbers must ascend to Camp 4, which rests 26,000 feet above sea level, and that begins which is called, what is called the Death Zone. Um, the longer you stay on the Death Zone, the more at risk you are putting yourself. On the North Ridge, climbers don't face the icefall, which is very dangerous, but they must traverse several, several kilometers of terrain above 27,000 feet, which is in the Death Zone, um, in order to reach the summit, which is considered more dangerous climbing. So there are pros and cons to which side you go up. Um the ascent for most of the north ridge is easier. It's a, it's not as steep, yeah. but then that last part is incredibly difficult. So it really just depends on your physical capability.
1: I couldn't do it. I couldn't I couldn't get to base camp. No, I couldn't get to base camp.
0: From camp 4, climbers leave at 11 p.m. for an 8 to 16 hour trek to the summit many turn back at this point, even with the top so close as hypoxia sets in. I've read one book about um, climbing Mount Everest, which I'll talk about later, um, but I've also watched some documentaries about it. And a lot of them talk to people who turn away like 300 feet from the top. And that's really hard to understand as someone who's not there. But in that type of environment, when oxygen is so low, to us, 300 feet is a two-minute walk maybe, but to them, 300 feet could easily take them 25 minutes, and like literally every minute counts because most people there is an unspoken rule that those who have not reached the top by noon should turn back because it is not safe to be at the summit and then descend past noon because of the changing weather conditions um, of the afternoon weather. In 1996, there was a major accident on Mount Everest. It's called the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. Um, 12 people died. It's the third deadliest day on Everest history. And a lot of them died because there are many factors, but Many, uh, one big thing is that they had gone to the summit past the time that they should mm-hmm. have. So they were descending way too late into the day. And then they got caught in weather that they didn't know was coming. Um, and that's very dangerous. Once at the summit, most only stay for 20 minutes before heading back down. So it's very, very short-lived while you're up there. Mm-hmm. But you do need to obtain proof that you were up there. So you have to bring a camera. And I'll talk about what happens if you don't link. <gasps> it's crazy. As one climber describes, even when you reach the top, you're only halfway done because you still have to climb down. Most accidents occur on the descent after days of oxygen deprivation. On the descent, climbers are constantly faced with dead, frozen bodies of past climbers, which really affects mm. your psyche. Of the 300 people who have died on Everest, over 200 remain on the mountain. <gasps> yeah. Ugh. Um, there is one famous corpse referred to as Green Boots, who sits in a cave about 1,000 feet from the top. Um, Green Boots was an Indian climber who died in the Northeast Ridge in 1996, the same year as the Everest disaster, but not the same incident. Um, the disaster that I mentioned is the one that is depicted in Jon Krakauer's Into Thin Air. He was a writer who is also a climber. He wrote, he wrote Into the Wild. Uh-huh. But he was also a climber and he was hired by a magazine to do a book about what it's like to climb Mount Everest. And he just so happened to be there when this accident happened. His book is genuinely the most interesting thing I've ever read. I'm not a, I'm not an outdoorsy person. I don't really care about sports. I don't really care about mountain climbing, but it is so fascinating because this book makes it so clear i think that there are a million factors into having like you have to get it perfect when you go up and if you Mm -hmm. don't any mess up could seriously endanger somebody's life and even though the major factor i would say at the end of why all these people died was that they summited too late Throughout the book, he makes it very clear, you know, if this person hadn't chosen to stay behind, if this person had secured their line in a different way, if this person had turned around 200 feet earlier, like, none of this would have happened. And also that every weather report, he talks about how when you're up there, you are such, like, a slave to the elements, and the only thing that matters is getting your weather report that you get from base camp, because you go up and then back and up and then back, but you have to try to maintain communication. And the weather reports at all said everything was going to be fine, and then it just ended up that it wasn't. Like, there was a hurricane. There wasn't a hurricane, but there was a major storm that, like, they didn't know was going to happen. So, it's really about being prepared at every single moment, even if you are prepared and you think that you've done everything right. Like, you could... There's still a great risk that you are going to seriously hurt yourself. And lots of people sustain major injuries. They don't die, but they have frostbite, they lose fingers, they lose toes, things like that, trying to summit the mountain um, because there's just so much that could affect them. So the Mount Everest disaster was mostly in part to weather. Like I said, it was the third deadliest day of ever, of climbing Everest history. Um, Most of the deceased from this incident remain on the mountain as well. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more visible than others. There's this really haunting part of the book where... And many documentaries talk about this, too, is that so many of climbers' bodies are not found because they'll die and slide off the mountain or something <gasps> like that. Um, so there are people from this expedition who have never been found. And there's a really haunt There's always a haunting part of any documentary book you read about others where they talk about how someone just fell over and slipped away and you just never see them again. Ah! And it's like, it's horrific. It's so scary. But that's very common. And part of the reason that that happens is that when you have hypoxia, this is what makes the descent so so scary Mm. your brain is telling you that you can take a rest they're telling you to sit down but then once you sit down you cannot get back up and that is a huge problem um and that's why most people die on the descent because they choose to rest and then Mm. slide off or something like that and they're not being safe and they're not being careful and they're not securing their lines Mm. properly especially when you're passing people passing people to pass somebody you have to unhook yourself from the rope and then hook yourself back in front of them um and you need to do it quickly and perfectly. And if it's not done perfectly, like, you, you could get seriously injured. People have died that way, too. So there's just so much intri- intricacy to it um, that that's why, again, like, you have to know that you're going to be able to perform at your best, even when your brain is literally not getting enough oxygen. Yeah. That's why so few people attempt it and make it. Um, in 2014, an avalanche on Everest killed 16 Sherpas. Again, mm. like, completely un completely unplanned, nothing that they could have known was going to happen. And then in 2015, an earthquake in Nepal killed 9,000 people in Nepal, including 18 people at the Everest base camp, which is the deadliest day on the mountain thus far. So even without, you know, your own physical capabilities, like, you are still completely at risk to the elements out there. In 2018, 11 climbers died on their exposition. Ten of them perished after they had summited the mountain an american donald cash died on the summit they say he reached the top fell over and died
1: Mm. right at the top
0: which is insane again most people die on the way down because the hypoxia is telling them to sit and rest um climbers have reported seeing other climbers remove their clothes and go into hysterics as a side effect as well hypoxia will tell you that you're overheating and that you're warm so you'll start Mm. removing your gloves um and your clothes which is very scary However, it sounds like, wow, lots of people die. The overall death rate, which is the number of fatalities divided by the number of people on the mountain, not just those who summit it, is approximately 1.2%, meaning that if you try to climb Everest, you have about a 1 in 100 chance of dying on the way, which still isn't the best, Yeah, <laughs> but it sounds like it would be a lot higher. Um, it's it also does. important to know that from 1923, the first attempt to summon Everest ever started in 1924 um, by a Chinese man named George Mallory, he tried to climb it on the south, on the northern side from Tibet and he died and then no one was able to do it. No one tried again until the 50s. Or no one was successful until the 50s. Mm. Um, So between
1: 1924
0: and 1999, 170 people died on Everest with only 1,169 summits. So 14.5% of people who summited Everest died. But... The deaths drastically declined from 2000 to 2018 with 7,990 summits and 123 deaths or 1.5%. So again, like improvements in technology and just how we understand the elements and nature Mm -hmm. has drastically decreased the chances, the number of people that die by like 13%. So it was much more dangerous before than it is now. And now I'm going to end with a story that was a really fascinating New York Times article I read, um, which is about a group of Indian climbers, three of whom died on the mountain and what it was like to extract their body. Mm. In 2017, a group of Sherpas spent days removing the corpse of Gautam Ghosh, who died a year earlier on May 21st, 2016. He was a part of an eight-person expedition that lost three of its members that year. The West Bengal government, which is where they were from, demanded their recovery, which is incredibly difficult, but proved impossible before the end of the 2016 season. They are able to remove the body of Gauche's climbing partner, Subhas Paul, that year in two thousand sixteen. It took four hours to chip and pry his body from the ice at twenty six thousand feet. Yeah. They found the body of his other climbing partner, Parish Nath, but were unable to extract him, so they were forced to wait to remove Nath and Ghosh, who they had not found until the following year, 2017. Mm. Meanwhile, Ghosh's wife, Chandana, believed that Ghosh was still alive in the year that passed because his body was not found. So she thought maybe he was just lost. He was lost in the mountain and somehow got down some other way and was just missing.
1: Mm. But that he was alive. That seems unlikely to
0: me. <laughs> on the day of their ascent, the Indian climbers insisted on pushing towards the summit, even though they were not making good time to reach it by noon. At 1023, Seattle doctor Paul Potenger passed the group on the way back down. Um, Paul, not Paul Pot- not Dr. Potenger. Paul as in Soup House Paul. The missing person. The missing person. The- He's not the missing person. He's he- His body was recovered and oh, taken yeah. back. Mm-hmm. Um. His guide, Locke Pasherpa, asked Pottinger for the time, which Pottinger has a recorded video of, and you can watch the video on the New York Times website. In the video, you see Pottinger show the guide and Paul, his watch that says 1023, and you hear the guide ask repeatedly for the time. Pottinger thought that this was just a side effect of the hypoxia, but months later, Pottinger said in an interview, I wonder if he had a watch. I wonder if he was really saying, please tell my guy to stop because I cannot. Sherpas, when they climb the mountain, are not allowed to say, no, you can't do that. Like, they yeah. can't force somebody to stop. Um, Sherpas can turn around. In protection of their own life, they can turn around and leave. But most of the time, they don't want to because they've been hired yeah. as the person to take them there. Um so, the problem that, that Lakpa Sherpa was facing with House Paul was that Paul was saying, I'm going to push the summit, and the Sherpa was unable to force him to stop. Yeah. So, he was trying to stop other people to say, please tell him to go. Yeah. In a roundabout way, you yeah. know? Um, Pottinger later passed Ghosh. Gauch- Um, who was also climbing, he wrote later, as before, I said nothing to them about how late it was, and as before, it haunts me to this day. Like, he wishes that he would have said, you cannot do this. Yeah. But he was just so, like, this isn't isn't my business, I'm gonna go down. Yeah. You know, there could be 70 people trying to summit in one day with different expeditions. Um, Paul and his Sherpa reached the summit at 1.45 p.m., according to the camera recovered on his body. Somewhere on the south summit, Ghosh gave up, and his guide kept going to the summit alone with Ghosh's camera. So Ghosh's Sherpa continued without him up the mountain. Interestingly enough, there is one associate that was with them, Hazra, who was the lone survivor of this accident, said that she reached the summit at 3 p.m., but she has no proof that she arrived. There are no photos of her up there. Oh. She has petitioned for a certificate to document the summit from the Nepalese government but has not received one.
1: Oh.
0: So they don't they don't know if she lied about that. Um but she did survive. Somewhere on the way down, all four Bengal climbers were lost. Mm. Yeah. The next day, Gru making an ascent past two of the Sherpas. Then they came across two of the climbers later, the woman, Hazra, and Ghosh, lying sideways on a hill attached to a rope close to death. Mm. Hazra was sitting upright, but Ghosh was hanging upside down like his feet in the air. Um, And he was alive, but barely. Mm. At this altitude, there are few options for rescue. Um, You cannot fly a helicopter up there. Um, there's nothing really you can do unless someone wants to physically help carry you down, which is incredibly hard because you're already weak yourself.
1: Well, I know helicopters is too high. It's too
0: high. The altitude's too high for helicopters and planes. There's no place to land. Like, there's nothing you can do.
1: There's no. There's no. Way well, like too planes right. can get up there, but they can't stop. You know. No. No, they can't <laughs> hover. Like, there's nothing yeah. that
0: they could do. Yeah, no, you can't get a helicopter up there. <laughs> yeah, so when you're up there, your only choice That's why so many people stay on the mountain, because once you're up there, you have to be able to physically get yourself back down. Otherwise, you, they just can't come get you. Um, the first group to come upon them, which was a group of American, with at least one American, decided to do nothing, and that American was the first to summit the mountain that morning at 2.40 a.m. On his way back down, he noticed that Hasra was gone and Ghosh was dead. Hanging upside down. Hasra was saved by British climber Leslie Binns, who aborted his own summit to help her down. On their descent, they discovered Paul, who started to descend with them, but Paul fell into a shallow crevice. Binns chose to help Hasra, assuming that Paul had more energy because when he fell down the crevice, he was, like, waving his arms. He was like, okay, so he has some energy to, like... Mm -hmm. probably pull himself out um but he did not realize that paul did not follow climbers awoke in the night at camp four to his shouting 100 yards uphill he was brought down to camp four um and on the next descent on their way down to camp two they were gonna go they were gonna skip camp three and just go because you can go from four to two in one day um paul was moving slowly and his guides abandoned him and he sat down to rest and he died on that hill so he was the lowest down. That's why they were able to recover him that season. He was the lowest down the mountain. Nath, meanwhile, um, at the same time Paul was being abandoned, Nath was discovered alive and carried to Camp 4, but he died in a tent on Camp 4. Mm. Without knowing who this was, 27 people stepped over Goach on their way up and down the summit that year, but they had no idea who he was. And that's that happens a lot. They don't know who this person is. It's not with their expedition. Um, and they're not, the expeditions aren't really talking to each other, so they didn't know that there was someone from this expedition missing. Yeah, Hasra couldn't remember the last time she saw Ghosh, and there are so many different ways to get up the mountain. This is the most popular, but they just had no idea who it was.
1: Yeah. Jeez!
0: Um, Yeah. So, for the next year, Ghosh's family did not know that the body being passed in the summit route belonged to Ghosh until the following season, a photo made its way to Ghosh's wife, who confirmed that the body belonged to him by the snowsuit that he was wearing. She recognized it. Yeah. Um, at that point, hundreds of people had passed him on the summit without knowing who he was. Um, For the the Indian government paid $90,000 for the removal of Ghosh and Nath. Nepal's Department of Tourism gave them one condition. The bodies could not go down the same time hundreds of climbers are going up. So they had to do it at night instead of during the day when people would be passing by. Um, The bodies were recovered of both Paul and Ghosh and taken to their hometowns where they were medically examined and then cremated. This sort of rescue is very rare and it took over a year to complete because... Again, to be able to figure out exactly where somebody is is really difficult because you don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um she was able to identify him by his snow soup and met a lot of the time, you know, the bodies are preserved by the ice and snow. Um, you can watch a video of them carrying the body down the mountain and it's like it's frozen solid. It's not yeah. moving, and you don't see any of its skin and face. But like it is very it's very – it was a stroke of luck that they knew that's exactly where he was. Same with Paul because – or Nath because he happened to die in a attendant camp four. They knew mm. exactly where he was. But that's part of the other reason that rescue is so rare is to know exactly where they landed is very difficult and incredibly expensive. It costs $45,000 per, per person. And this group could barely – they were all very poor. They could barely yeah. afford the summit themselves and it's something that most families of deceased climbers wouldn't be able to afford so that's a story about how to rescue someone on Everest it's It's very hard it's very scary and like I find it really I don't know I think things that are scary fascinate me because it's I'm not a very brave soul um but I just find it I just find it very interesting the what it takes to climb Everest and I think there are so many articles that describe that like People do it because the rush you get from being at the top, it's, like, incomparable. And, like, say, people say, like, it really is the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. Like, it's not even, like, they're doing it because they're, like, I want to prove that I am in physical shape. Like, its it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not – mountain climbing isn't really that type of sport. Like, it's not to be a show-off. It's more to, like – it's more – you do it more for yourself than you do it for anyone else, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's how they all talk about it, at least but it is really interesting and super fascinating. If you want to learn more about Everest, I suggest John Krakauer's book. It's called Into Thin Air. Again, it's like the most interesting thing I've ever read in my life. I knew nothing about mountain climbing and I still like loved this book and I want to reread it. Um, And the documentary Summit, which is about Mount Everest. There was a movie made based off of Into Thin Air. It's called Everest. Jake Gyllenhaal is in it, amongst other famous actors. And it was like, okay. <laughs> um, the book the book was definitely... I mean, it was meant to be dramatic, and it was pretty close to the book, but I think the book goes into the nuance and politics of the relationships between climbers and Sherpas, which is really fascinating, and how that works, and also, like, how much of the responsibility the Sherpa has for the success of the climb, um, and often... People climb for their country, like it's a really big deal when someone is the first of their country to do it, and Sherpas don't necessarily have that because many of them are from there, um, so their accomplishments have kind of been undermined in that way, but it is really impressive what they do, and I want to, you know, celebrate that and call that out, so that's yeah. a little bit about what it takes to climb Mount
1: Everest. That sounds really cool. I never will, but <laughs> yeah, no, never Never going to try. never will. I'm looking at pictures of people climbing it.
0: It's crazy. And when you look at the photos and videos, like, it's amazing what you have to do to do it, you know? Like, I, I admire people with that sort of perseverance and strength. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's everything for this week. Yeah. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I'veBeenWondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us on Anchor through the link in the bio, or consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com.
1: Sarah. Yeah? Do you know what I've been wondering? What? Okay, well, I've seen a couple posts about in the, time of corona and shelter in place and quarantine that dating is gonna is like changing drastically and that guys have to put in more work uh, to like woo lady because like they have to go back to like winning them via conversation and <laughs> wooing them with their personalities. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So that made me think of something that I haven't wanted to ask you about for a while and that is chivalry because i've heard it's not what we make it sound like like i've heard it was a very specific
0: okay very
1: odd code from like the medieval times that oh okay wouldn't actually yeah really be relevant to today so so yeah talk about chivalry and like when did it die if it's dead yeah sure that sounds interesting i'm into that mine kind of goes along with that jane you know what
0: i've been wondering Uh uh-huh this, you're going to be like, where did this come from? Stained glass. Oh. <laughs> okay. So stained glass is pretty and we like it. Uh-huh. And I, I have an idea of how it's made, but I know that like, it was important in like the art world. And uh-huh. I just want to know more about that. Okay. Like when did it become really popular? Mm-hmm. What is its significance in art, medieval art, but also like it became like a really big thing in churches yeah. and now you really only see it in churches. Why? You know, I want to know more about that. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. So, cool. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.